Sunset Lake CBD is a majority employee-owned hemp farm located right outside of Burlington, Vermont. Before they started growing hemp, Sunset Lake Farms produced cream for Ben & Jerry's. Sunset Lake CBD doesn't use any pesticides or herbicides to grow any of its hemp plants, and they use organic fertilizer and other sustainable farming techniques to ensure the long-term health of the soil and to minimize their carbon footprint. So like all of us, my days are really stressful. By the end of the night, my kids are in bed, I'm taking a minute to chill, but I'm still unwinding. I recently started using the Relax Gummies infused with CBD isolate, reishi mushroom extract, and ashwagandha root extract. I'm really glad I tried these because they really helped me get ready for a good night of sleep, and I really think I sleep better, so I'd highly recommend it. Check out Sunset Lake CBD today at sunsetlakecbd.com and use the code UNDERMINE for 20% off your order. That's sunsetlakecbd.com and use the code UNDERMINE for 20% off your order. Farmer-owned, Vermont-grown, Sunset Lake CBD. Hi, listeners. I want to tell you about a cause that I'm involved with at Heritage Radio Network. HRN is celebrating its 15th year, and to celebrate, we're deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Osiris. Once the lights go down, I'm usually all the anxiety melts away. And I'm just I'm there and I'm in the moment. You know, I was do my best to not have thoughts during the fish show, frankly, you know, that's that's the goal. It's everything. It's it's an escape. It's being with friends. It's being in a place that's comfortable yet can be unknown. Hands down, no doubt about it, my favorite second set ever was the E Center in Delta, Utah, outside Salt Lake City in 1998 when they did the Dark Side of the Moon start to finish. My favorite second set is June 14th, 2000 from Fukuoka, Japan. June 14th, 2000, drum logos. It goes back on the train, twist into a ghost-like jam, into walk away. I think it's unlike anything else. It's a complete journey and experience from start to finish that is out of body when you listen to it. I would say my favorite second set of all time is June 14th, 2000, just because, you know, that is the only set in fish history where aliens invaded fish's bodies and played a set of alien music through them. (laughs) 
that is like, I do want to have a whole podcast on everyone's favorite second sets because I'm sure we could all have enough material. I mean, best show I've ever attended, favorite show I've ever attended is Big Cypress and everyone knows why. If you take that out of it though, you know, not to be cliche, but my next one. So it was the second set on 12297 was the first time that I was really blown away by a fish jam. I remember the moment in particular, it was during the the breakdown of the simple jam as Trey and Paige were kind of playing off of each other and Mike and Fish dropped out and it just looked like Trey and Paige were kind of having a musical conversation and I had never seen anything like that before and I was just sitting there in awe that people could be doing this and playing so quietly in a big arena and it just blew my mind and I've never really turned back since then. second set I ever saw. It was Raleigh, North Carolina, Walnut Creek, 72297. 72297, Walnut Creek. And I went on a road trip down to Virginia Beach and down to uh, Raleigh with an old buddy of mine. And this was like his last road trip because he was getting married and all this stuff. And then we had that massive rainstorm that struck and the huge rain delay, the lightning that struck the venue during Taste. And then they came out and they dropped that incredible second set. And I ended up, you know, coming out of that just saying, my God, this is unreal. And I can't imagine not feeling this again. And there's just no place I'd rather be. And if it wasn't for that show and that second set, I probably wouldn't have met I'm a lot more friends I met along the way. I probably wouldn't have met my wife. So it was, it was a pretty key moment. It was still early going in my fish career. You know, I'd been seeing them for a couple years at that point. All my friends were on the lawn except myself. I had mail order and I was in the pavilion and the rain was crazy. And I wanted to join them, but I also didn't want to get wet. I I remember the lightning from first set. I was, you know, no cell phones back then. So I just kept thinking, oh, I hope my friends on the lawn are okay. Wasn't sure if the show was going to get canceled. So when they came out and opened up with that uh, disease, I I was immediately just... I don't know, hypnotized, I guess you could say. I mean, that set alone, to this day, is one of the favorite things I've ever experienced. And I think it's because it was like a converging point of a weather event, <laughs> plus the band, plus the music. There's something happens when you're experiencing some sort of supernatural <laughs> while the band is playing. Island, I thought that 713 show, the second set was just terrific. I mean, blew my mind. I left that show again, you know, dragging my jaw along behind me. Um, And I love that the band could still do that, even in 3.0.
the fact that when you step into a fish show, you have no idea what you're going to experience. And so if you are going to miss even a minute of it, that minute could be the bust out, or it could be like a minute where something crazy happens between the audience and the band that colors the rest of the show. I think that's for me, like what causes the neuroticism to kick in. It's like, okay, I, I could be like completely behind for the rest of the show if I miss 30 seconds. Okay, uh, this story takes place. I'm just doing this because I haven't had such a, a great, attentive, quiet audience in such a long time, years. So I want to tell you guys this story here. Okay, what we were just saying... But I, th- I think I really like a diverse night. I really enjoy a first set that's fast-paced, upbeat, rock and roll, songs like 46 Days or Possum or Simple. And then I like a, a set, too, that starts off quick, but but turns into some deep jams and ends with something that makes me cry, like Sleeping Monkey, and then close it out with something like Loving Cup, right? I like I like leaving on a really high note, but I like a nice, diverse night. It give me a whole kind of up and down experience. That's what makes the fish show so great is is the adventure of the of the whole night can draw out a lot of emotions. On summer tour 1994, two friends in the parking lot had a bucket of ice water. On a sweltering day at Finger Lakes Amphitheater, one dunked his head in the bucket and said, that's what a first set feels like. The other friend took the bucket, lifted it up, dumped it over his friend's head, soaking him, and said, and that's a good second set. Hi, I'm Tom Marshall, Fish's lyricist. But let's skip the small talk, because the entire second season of Undermine has been leading us up to this episode, the second set. We did all the things we've talked about on previous episodes just to get here. We learned about this band, Fish. We hit the road to catch them on tour. We pulled into a parking lot and strutted through Shakedown, the pop-up marketplace that springs up outside of every show while the band's crew sets up inside the venue. Then we went inside, took up positions, and raged the first set. That sure was great. At set break, we did this sort of thing or that sort of thing. Nothing you wouldn't do. And all of it was a lead-up for this moment. Well, almost. First a word from our sponsors. Jen Moore. My first fish show was April 23rd, 1993. Fish played at my college for spring party weekend. 
So I was intrigued enough at the age of 19 to go to my first concert by myself. And it was something interesting and different to listen to. And there was considered myself, you know, a pretty smart student then. And I really studied hard and fish was also something you could study. I remember sitting, you know, in a friend's dorm room, you know, just like listening to tapes over and over again and being excited for the next tape because I was going to hear a song that I had never heard of before. It was before the internet. It was all word of mouth. And, you know, once you signed up for the Doniac Spice, that was how you found out about everything. And, you know, being able to feel like I could learn more about this band all of the time was really cool. And I still feel that way now, listening to the podcasts and reading interviews. I like to think, and I think most people who really like fish like to think that they know the story. We all have our own version of it, but I'm still learning, you know, and there's still new music and, you know, there's still new stories to learn and hear. It's, it's pretty cool. That was fish fan Jen Moore explaining our collective compulsion to immerse ourselves in the fish experience. That's not really something you get with most other bands or that you hear from their respective fan base, is it? One Fish fan who has spent a lot of time thinking and writing about this is Dave Kalarka, who authors the literary quality blog, Mr. Miner's Fish Thoughts. What does the larger fish experience mean to me? I mean, I mean, how much time do you have? <laughs> I mean, that's a really big question. In fact, Mr. Miner has so many fish thoughts that he wrote an entire book about it. You know, I feel that fish is our way, our pathway of attaining these experiences, of understanding the universe with which we live in and, you know, the minuscule place that each of us have, but also the one force that we are all a part of. There's so many different aspects to fish experience and what it means to me, but like the deepest part of it is this spiritual aspect to it where it has been the way that I have accessed an understanding of reality more completely and more directly than anywhere else in my life. So the fish experience is, I guess in a nutshell, I mean, it's just really multifaceted. It really cuts to the core of what I hold dear about life. And what you're feeling right now, you probably suddenly feel stimulated, excited, and overjoyed. And let me tell you that we're doing that to you because this, what you're feeling right now, is the vibration of life. Even at the times when I was analyzing every show in a more critical way with when I was writing. I did that after. The live show was always this sacred space to me. I gave myself to unconditionally, regardless of how the show went, song choice, jams getting cut off or not. Like, I was just in the moment. That's the goal. Obviously things happen. You, you have to, the, the show for me was always a sacred space with which I, you know, was essentially dancing like super hard and just kind of like taking my mind out of it and giving myself to the experience, whatever that experience would be on that night. And then obviously 
when the show ends and we go back to the hotel room and whatnot and maybe we're listening to the show or maybe we're talking about it that's where the whole like all right so like what really happened there and like what was going on and what was trey thinking and well like that's when things became more based you know the experience in itself was very visceral There's different things that you want to get out of it. You know, some people, you know, love the high energy explosions, the group sing-alongs. Some people want those, you know, unifying moments of that happen during deep improvisation. And, you know, the the difference between them, I think really, it's a matter of who you are and where your what your perspective is. That's Chop to those familiar with him on Twitter and Chris Glushko for everyone else. Once Fish went to GA floors in 3.0, we started focusing much more on being on the floor. And now you could find me pretty much at any show that we're at. We'll be down on the floor I'm in the sweet spot, which, you know, old taping term for where it sounds best, maybe slightly over to Mike's side, and that's where our crew hangs out. And it's kind of about focus these days. crowds at shows these days are a lot chattier and a lot more distracted than they used to be. And it's probably just the case of, you know, age, what people are ingesting when they're at shows, you know, how much they care about the show. It's not in, and again, this is going to sound a little get off my lawn, but in the 90s, you could be pretty much any spot in the venue and everybody was going to be in full focus and chatter was pretty minimal. And of course, I could be remembering it differently because there was a you know different time back then. But now I find that the crowd is a lot chattier, um, especially in the seats and especially as you get farther away from the stage. You hear that sound? That's CHOP, or any number of fans telling you to be quiet. You don't talk during a movie or at a Broadway musical, so why would you talk at Fish? Unless, yes, there is an unless. Unless you're speaking in the band's secret language. Uh, the language, this is the secret language. You guys really want to be in and on a big secret here. Some of you people are already in on it, because I tested you earlier tonight. How many of you got it? Perhaps we can get fish fan Pooh Tzu to translate for us. In the, in the spring of 94, there was a, a, a plethora of secret language going around. And that's when I really got introduced to that part of it. 93 was my first secret language. And there might have, there was some nights that there were like two or three in the night. So that had to be the, the most memorable. And I just, I loved it when it was early on and nobody knew anything about it. And we go to a show and they play the turn, turn, turn by the birds.
we'd all turn around and the stage was in the back of the room and what are you doing? Or fall down. Sense, and they were all so much fun. Yeah, so at December 11th, 99 show, they played a language cue that I was having trouble placing. So I frantically turned to my friend Micah Kagan and said, Wait, wait, wait what is this one? Is this, is this, is this the I fuck language? And then before he could answer, the entire audience around me fell down because it was the all fall down language. I think I looked over at him and then I said, ah, fuck, because I was the idiot who was left standing. That last fan standing over there is Ben Greenfield. You can sit down now, Ben, at ease. But while the band has their secret language that they used as both an inside joke to those in the know and as a prank for those in the not, the audience has come up with their own way of communicating and or pranking the band in various ways. One of the most well-known of these is the hood chant, which was originally intended as a one-time prank to catch the band off guard. Let's hear from our head writer, Benji Eisen whom you can blame for its genesis. Yeah, in the spring of 1996, I was in Northampton, Massachusetts. I was pretending to go to college. I was definitely, if nothing else, acing my class in Hippie 101. (laughs) I was going to drum circles, engaging in all sorts of extracurricular activities. At that time, I was also obsessed with fish, just completely and totally obsessed with fish. I I still am, obviously, but in 1996, it was three years into my fandom, so it was still new to me. Everything was new to me. You know, my friends and I had this kind of running joke for a very short period of time, and this particular one was the James Brown version of Huh. And if we could just get away with inserting that somewhere in conversation, especially at like completely inappropriate times or places where it doesn't work, well, then it, it worked because we just it, it was just to amuse ourselves and we knew that nobody else got it. We knew obviously that it could be really annoying. And I think that's probably what also made it so funny to us. It's kind of like, you know, Fishman's troll pad. Yeah, yeah. Except that it was huh. That was in conversation. Musically, for a very short while, we would insert it during downbeats and breaks the way that James Brown intended it. And so I remember I was driving around Northampton. I I think I was coming home from class at UMass or something. I can very clearly still remember even the intersection that I was at when Hood came on, on cassette, whatever show I was listening to at the time. And when it got to that part of Harry Hood where they say Harry, I instinctively, because I was doing this left and right anyway, I instinctively answered it with a Hood. And then very quickly I realized that you could actually just go Hood, keeping the James Brown inflection and of course that was the name of the song and it was, you know, all these things. It was just funny. And I thought that it was the funniest thing that I had ever heard in that minute. 
but it was certainly not anything that I envisioned would be a, a, a 25-year tradition. Later on that evening, I went to a cyber cafe. I logged on to Rec Music Fish, and there was a frequent poster and a friend of mine, Darius Zelker, who was trying to crowdsource ideas for printing the band at Red Rocks you know, later that summer. Usually it's the band printing us, and occasionally it's us printing the band, and it doesn't ever really matter which way the prank is going or where it originates. We might not even know the punchline or why something is funny. We just all know that it is. I give Darius the Harry Hood idea. He puts it on a flyer. He made thousands of these flyers. Hand them out to everyone in the lot at Red Rocks. I got one. All my friends got one. You looked around and you would see them. But then the band played Hood and I, in the very beginning, I was nervous. I turned around to look at the audience and then all of a sudden I saw 9,499 other people all yell hood right on cue. hilarious because they were all unwitting participants living out my own private inside joke. And I, you know, imagine that the band must be familiar with that very specific feeling because so many things that they say or they do or they sing or they play from stage originated as some kind of inside joke between themselves. Then it was a few days later, the Ned stop after Red Rocks, Alpine Valley, and they played Hood, and I definitely was not expecting the chant to continue. But sure enough, and it wasn't the majority of people, but enough people did it that night, you knew immediately, oh shit, this might actually continue. And I remember my best friend, Matt McGuire, kind of looked at me like, what have you done, you monster? Uh, two decades later, they played the Tahoe Tweezer. The audience starts wooing in the breaks. I don't woo, but I was just so thrilled that everybody was doing it and I was so thrilled that it continued because it meant that I was off the hook. Yeah, maybe you're off the hook. To make up for the hood chant and with the unwitting help of Andy Bernstein and the Farmer's Almanac crew, as a follow-up prank, Benji started a smaller, less successful campaign to yell balls instead, as in Harry balls. And then there were the big ball jams of the mid-90s. Let's get our friend Mike Greenhouse, the longtime editor of Relics Magazine, to explain that. The Big Ball Jam was one of the truly unique fish exercises in antics. At the time that the band debuted it in 1992, they had just started to outgrow the clubs and theaters that they frequented in the late 80s and early 90s, and were gradually moving into the arenas and amphitheaters that, of course, would take them into the 21st century. And as they were getting bigger, they were hoping to maintain that direct connection they had always had with their fans. The way that the big ball jam worked is that the band would throw out four different balls into the audience. Each ball in color represented a different member of the band, and the band would actually jam along with the way the balls fell and were thrown and were moved around the audience. So it really did allow the audience and the band to have a really intimate connection as they moved into these larger venues. The last big ball jam was December 9th, 1994 in Arizona. Fish's balls have not been seen since, but we've heard they're big. After that, the band had to think of a new way to interact directly with their fans. 
What would they do next, now that they retired the balls? After all, if it's all just fun and games, it should be fun and games. And so I knew they were into chess and I was into chess and I was into fish. So one day, I think it was in the fall of 90, no, spring of 94. Actually, it was the fall of 1995. But that's the voice of our friend Pootsu again. That's Poo spelled P-U. I saw Paige before a show and I said, hey man, let's play some chess sometime. And and he was like, okay, yeah, yeah, sure. And then I saw him a few days later at another show and I was like, I didn't have a ticket for the show. And I told him I didn't have a ticket. And I said, how about that? How about that chess game? And he went off and we split and went different directions. And then I saw him just before the show, he popped out from behind a tree with a ticket. And then uh, I worked the parking lot at Shoreline and I was a glass swinger. So I was selling glass pipes. And Greenpeace Mike comes over and says, hey, didn't you want to play page in chess? And I was like, yeah. He's like, well, well, come on. Greenpeace Mike, by the way, ran the Greenpeace table that the band used to have set up inside their shows before the water wheel table replaced it. Brought me backstage. Fishman's playing Miss Pac-Man or something. And Paige and Mike are sitting on a couch. And there's a chessboard on the coffee table. And Trey's kind of walking around, greets me. And so I, hey, Paige, how you doing? Oh, we're going to play chess. Cool. So I sat down. We made a couple of moves. I think it was three moves. And uh, Trey comes over and says, eh, that's good. I'm like, what? He's like, oh, you don't know what's going on? I said, like, huh? He's like, you don't know what's going on key to this story is that nobody, of course, knew what was going on. Remember, this was before the internet was in your pocket, back when information about what was happening at Fish took a little more time and effort to get briefed on. Plus, what Pootsu saw that night had never been seen before. And he brought me out to the front of the stage at Shoreline and showed me the giant chessboard. And, and I was like, what? He's like, well, so we're going to do this thing. We're going to play the audience in chess. And then we're going to have you come up and make moves and during the show. And so, and they said, so when, when I tell you to come down to the front of the stage and then Trey's going to call you on stage. And he did that. And then I came up and uh, did the chess moves. And the rest, as they say, is fishery. The late 95 edition of Fish's newsletter, The Donny Vice, read as follows. The tradition of bands playing chess against their audience dates back to the times of Gregorian chants. Chanters versus monks. The monks usually won. The great bluesmen of the 20s and 30s named their label Chess Records in honor of the legendary matches that took place in the blues halls and juke joints of the Deep South. And who could forget the giant chessboard that hung behind Jimi Hendrix on that misty morning in Woodstock, New York? I guess we forgot to mention that Fish also were pioneers of fake news. Because we all know that when Jimi Hendrix took the stage that misty morning, he wasn't playing chess anywhere near Woodstock, New York. The festival was held more than 60 miles away on a farm in Bethel. During his set, Hendrix allegedly set the board on fire when he realized it was Checkmate. Fast forward to Fish at Shoreline 1995. The band played white. Page is tense. Trying to react to a fine He's pondering the Sicilian defense. He's pondering the... Pootsu Black. Black. 
They made three chess moves each. Let's go back to the audiobook version of the late fall 1995 edition of the Doniak Schweiss to hear how it worked from there. The game has continued. One move per side per show. The band makes their move at the beginning of the first set, giving the audience the entire first set to analyze and strategize. Audience members place their vote at the Greenpeace table during intermission, and a representative from the audience emerges to climb the ladder during the second set and place the audience move. When the series ended conveniently with a tie on New Year's Eve, some wondered if the system was rigged. That was the last we heard of chess until this past New Year's, 25 years later. Tonight's audience chess move will be made by no one. The band, after losing their queen to a brilliant audience assault during the set break, resigns. But not all band fan interactions are inside jokes, pranks, games, or other bits of tomfoolery. Sometimes the audience needs to tell the band something in the hopes of making the collective fish experience even better. On those rare occasions when this has happened, the band, like every good conversationalist, has listened and then responded. Let's hear one-time PLM chairman Chris Glushko tell it like it was. No, PLM isn't the TikTok thing your kids are into. Don't be weird. So back in 1996, my buddy Pat Hogan and I were at Fish in Philadelphia. And it was the show was 1228-96. And we noticed that, you know, we saw Mike going off on the bass, but we really couldn't hear much of it. We decided right then and there that we're going to do something about it. This is, you know, when we talk about like the fan feedback loop and whether criticism helps or whether it doesn't, you know, th this, is, this is a great example one of why that fan feedback loop is important. So right then at that show, we started calling ourselves the people for a louder mic. And it was known as PLM. And I went on RMP, rec.music.fish, um, after that show. And I started talking about, we're starting an organization called People for a Louder Mic, because I'm, I'm so tired of not being able to hear Mike at shows. And other fans caught on to it. Dan Hantman, who was a fan back then, uh, he was the webmaster for Mockingbird years later, but he, uh, he built a website for it, built a petition, where uh, you know a few thousand fans like signed this petition to turn Mike up. Another fan by the name of Alex Valentine made these like people for a louder mic stickers that we used to give out and like we'd stick them on Paul Languedoc's equipment when he wasn't looking. And uh, I made these t-shirts. It was like when I catch fish, I like big bass. They're really bad. Um, you know, and I like sold all these like people for a louder mic t-shirts. And, you know, we had like this whole thing going and it was like this big thing. And then suddenly fish comes back in like summer 97 and Mike is just booming. And, you know, we're, we wondered for years, we're like, did we actually do that? You know, like, did they actually pay attention to us? 
Um, and then a few years later, I think it was in the early 2000s, might have been when they came back for 3.0, but the New York Times did this long article on fish and they started talking to Trey about, you know, fans and whatnot. Trey's quote to the New York Times, he started talking about the fans who like started this organization to turn, because to turn Mike's face up. And he said, not only did we turn him up, we created new musical spaces in which he could thrive. So when we read that, we're like, and we're just thinking ourselves, we're like, because you know, 97 is for many fans, um, 97 is like the holy grail of fish. And you know, we started thinking, so like, if we didn't like have our like cranky hissy fits that we couldn't hear Mike at that show in 96 and start this whole fan or call people for a louder mic, would that 97 sound have ever happened? Maybe so, and maybe not. Probably, yeah. But let's go back to Fish's ulterior motives. Here's Ben Greenfield again to say what we're all not thinking. My favorite in-joke at a Fish show is basically anything relating to Jennifer Dances, uh, except that it's not a joke. It's dead fucking serious. For workers that come back from their day. Just the vast range of nicknames for John Fishman, the antics of John Fishman, the banter and interactions between Trey and Fishman, like the trolling between them. I like I love Fishman's character and I love the interaction between Trey and Fishman and like the love that exists between them. And it's like it's like both hilarious and heartwarming. Hey Fish. Yes, Trey. While we're sitting under this bush. Our guy, Poo Sue, agrees. Oh, man. Fish is the is the maestro of, of in-jokes. I mean, my favorite had to be Lushington at Dick's when they started spelling things or Saturday night specials or there was always something fun going on at Dick's. And when they did Lushington, because that, oh, that's my holy grail of all songs. And I figured it out about halfway through. I was like, shoot, they're doing Lushington, <laughs> but they're not doing it. And then they followed up the next night with an encore and they sort of did this one song. There's another name for it, but it's I'm in a hole. And I thought that that was them admitting that they're a-holes because the, the song I'm in a hole ends up sounding like I'm I'm an a-hole. I'm in a hole. I'm, I'm an a-hole. And that they were a-holes for teasing us with Washington the night before. So that hands down, that's my favorite end joke. I'm in a hole. I'm in a hole. I'm an a-hole. 
So are we, because we're going to leave you hanging. Don't worry, we'll be back in no time. But if you get lost, meet left of soundboard, right next to the tall guy with dreadlocks. I'm Ryan Chachiri. Uh, my first fish show was October 22nd, 1996. That's Ryan Chacheri. His first show was October 22nd, 1996. And here's something you might not know. Ryan is the founder of TraysGuitarRig.com. And I am the founder of TraysGuitarRig.com. And fish still always surprises me. And I think that's such an incredible feat. I also really like a lot of recent fish which is really different from the fish of the past, but it's a lot more condensed to me. It's a lot more focused. It sounds very professional and put together to me. They know exactly what they want to do, and then they do it. There's a little less searching in the music. Over the course of the 2010s, Trey has been on this mission to really reshape the sound from that super high headroom, super clean tone with distortion pedals for overdrive into a high gain amplifier sound where you really control your distortion with the guitar knob and your hand. I remember just hearing that sound in Madison Square Garden for the first time, that howling, cutting guitar, sparkling tone bouncing off the rafters at MSG and just thinking, I, I gotta figure out what's happening here. This is, this is something different. Trey's guitar rig both the website and the actual thing have important roles for anybody wishing to unpack not only Fish's music, but also Fish's sound. And like all things Fish, constant evolution is the name of the game. Nothing can stay the same from tour to tour. There's no going back, only forward. Constant motion, or, well, or else we all get bored and move on. Go on, Ryan. We're all ears. I'd been tracking the equipment for a long time. There were a lot of websites out there that would have a snapshot of Trey's rig from one particular tour, one particular visit, where they had had a chance to see it, took some pictures and did some documentation. And I talked to friends about it all the time. There were several friends of mine that were always, always bouncing ideas off of, friends that I would go to shows with. I would say, what's this? That looks new. This sounds different. The goal of my website was, Let's take all these photos, let's be very vigorous about date tagging them, and then do this tour by tour setup where we have each tour on its own page and each page filled with photos from that tour. Because a lot of this is kind of bread and butter guitar equipment. You know, as Trey said, the Univibe thing he uses because Jimi Hendrix used it so much, you know, David Gilmore used it so much. The Tube Screamer, you know, is kind of the, the most referenced and famous distortion pedal probably in guitar history. So a lot of this is really bread and butter gear stuff. And I think it's helpful for people to kind of understand how it works so that they can try to 
develop their own sound. And that was that was really the inspiration behind it, and and the mission was to kind of create a historical record, you know, a long-term historical record, so that 20 years from now, when the information that's available out there in the world is even more of a jumble, and the dates are jumbled, and who knows what photo was when, and you're you're trying to figure out what year it is based on hairstyles, you know, there's a there's a record out there that says no, this is when this was. Like so many fans and their contributions to the scene, Ryan does the fish community such an incredibly cool service. He might not be able to tell us what the Jedi Switch does just yet, but he was the one to provide photographic evidence of its existence. Yes, this is a real thing, but while Ryan is the preeminent voice to talk gear, many fish fans lend their voice to talking about the shows. Let's hear from online fish commentator Mike Lonmamaminio. I like jamming. license plate literally says 20 minute jam. I crave fish and it's a unique experience and I I crave jam bands and I'm into many other ones as well. And I think when it boils down to it, the thing that we really chase is connected improv. And when the band finds it and locks in and the whole crowd feels it at the same time, there's just no other experience in life that I've ever found. It just, when they find a spot where it's, it kind of quiets down and it grooves and everybody's dancing in unison, like you know the next note that's coming. That's just something that is a drug like I've never found before. wrote a, a big piece about this after the Alpine show with the Ruby Waves. That was a really special show for me. So I think that as we've gotten older, the way that I listen to music and the way that I approach life has really changed. You know, you're getting older and wiser and things mean different things to you. When I saw Fish in 97, I remember distinctly, there's a maze that's the third song there that I s sat there and I looked at Trey and my brain exploded and I couldn't believe that anyone could play guitar like that. And I was just, I've made this comparison. It was like watching prime athletic Michael Jordan dunk on people's faces. Trey's not like that anymore. We can all agree on that. But the music for me is actually, sometimes I enjoy it more because I appreciate the little spacing of music that you don't need to play all those notes anymore. And I certainly miss that sometimes. But to get to a point where four guys connect at a level like right now, when they when they find it, it's not always there, but when they find it, four guys connecting as one is, is better than anybody. And also, like, I just think as we've gotten older, they don't want to be a nostalgia man, but nostalgia matters to me. And when they play songs that I've listened to for 30 years, that matters, like when they play Fluff. It's just, it's so emotional to hear those songs live because you don't know if you're never gonna hear it again. And this year certainly reminded us of that. 
And when you share that with people that have been seeing the band for 20 or 30 years, and we're all like, oh, they're playing Fluffhead, and this is like, it's just beautiful. The nostalgia matters. Like I just, I, those warm memories and the comfort of hearing the band play songs from from my years from from Junta and all that stuff. Like that stuff matters to me, and I appreciate every second a lot more than I did when I was younger. Younger, you're just like, yeah, this is cool. This is awesome. Now I go home and I reflect on it like it's like like I'm a monk or something. You know, it's just a beautiful thing that I appreciate every moment of, and I think it means so much more to me now than it, than it ever did. I don't have fun when people are loud and talking. I'm definitely a non-fan of talkers. Neither are we, unless, of course, it's on a podcast. But at Fish, down in front becomes get down in front. I think that I'm most me at a Fish show. I'm just me. I have a helmet on, and I'm having fun and smiling and hugging and telling people I love them and buying people beers and completely free of everything. I feel like everything that society might look at me down for being, all that's stripped away. It's just the most raw memo that you can get. And when the band hits a moment like the MSG Tweezer, like when they played the space opera section, it's a wave that comes over me. And I like to look at the lights and see what he's doing. And I like to look around when those moments hit at people's faces in the crowd because people are just doing the same thing that I do. And I just, that connectivity is amazing. that I know why I'm there and that's to really get into the music like I'm not talking because I could talk to all my guys and my friends later I just think naturally just the way I I think about fish and I appreciate the music that's my goal for three hours everything else is secondary I'm I'm focused during second set ideally everyone is locked in that's when the energy between the band and the audience is like one unified beam of light a thread that weaves together everything in the building regardless of which side of the stage they're on, regardless if it's someone's first show or their 400th, regardless of whether they're playing bass from the stage or air guitar from the nosebleeds, but you have to be tuned into it in order to be part of the weave. The needle skips, slips, and passes over the people looking at their phone or waiting in the concourse for a kielbasa. And if you're chomping the whole time, you'll be too preoccupied with more important things than transcendence. But you don't get the full fish experience by only going in halfway. I'm Scott Bernstein. My first fish show was April 15th, 1994 at the Beacon Theater in New York City. I, I came into the show really excited and had a feeling it would be a special evening, but it went well beyond my expectations. both in terms of the music and the show experience. 
In terms of the music, uh, the band was joined by the giant country horns for a bulk of the second set. Having listened to that, those uh, Arrowhead Ranch shows over and over again, it was so cool to hear the music of Fish accented by a horn section. Just to hear the horns hit that first time during Susie, I mean, there was just nothing like it. But but I would say they opened with Llama, and by the middle of Llama, I was, I was all in. Scotty B is the editorial director of Jambase, and when Fish goes on tour, he gets to pull his car up to that lucky intersection where work crosses paths with play. Writing for Jambase has given me the opportunity to pen many words about fish. And I'd say one of the turning points came in 2011 when I decided that Fish fans wanted a bite-sized way to take in what had happened the previous night. I put together the skinny, which was a statistical rundown, what happened the previous night, kind of like a box score, if you will, with different stats and stuff. And the skinny came with me to Jambase, and it's still a huge part of our fish coverage. Scotty Bernstein has done a great service for the fish community. He has posted full recaps and stats about each show within hours of when the show ends for every show for the last decade. And it's incredible. Uh, And he has been kind enough to invite me to contribute a number of these, the the skinny that appears on jambase.com. That's the voice of Twitter's Guy Forget. My name is Ben Greenfield. Who we heard from earlier. My first fish show was December 28th, 1996 at the Spectrum in Philadelphia. I mean, my basic feeling is like if you want a group that doesn't criticize its leader, even when he fucks up, then join the Republican Party. Um, And if you want a, a group that is able to be honest and appreciate when their people have a good night, and when they have a bad night, then become a Fish fan. And they say that Fish is a notoriously nonpartisan band. We're a nonpartisan podcast. We participate in politics, we just have a different view of the word party. I also just remember there being like a lot of like organized groups at that time. There was um, people for a louder mic. One that that I became a member of was uh, people for a clearer fish, which was kind of the organi- organization of people who were getting into burning compact discs when that became a thing. But even some of the people who spend all their time analyzing fish, thinking about fish, discussing fish, critiquing fish, will tell you that so much of that noise is just to fill the silence in between shows. During set two, the best thing one can do to get the full fish experience is to just experience fish. Mr. Minor has done all the above a lot. Actually, more of a philosophical thing than even just a fish-based thing. But like, basically, I I had an understanding that like, fish is only going to play the show that they're going to play. Whatever happens is what happens. And you know, that's true with fish shows and it's true with life. Regardless of what 
I want them to do, you know, anytime I began going down that road, I realized it's just a form of resistance to reality. In this case, the reality is a concert. When you begin resisting what is, you begin creating suffering for yourself. Once you begin resisting and creating suffering, then you're diminishing joy. And then all of a sudden you're your own worst enemy. I would say how well the band is firing is the most important aspect of a fish show to me. Um, I want to see them communicating well. I want to see them happy. I want to see them reach places in their jamming that they haven't before. Um, so I, I think that to me is the most important aspect of the, the, the fish ex experience. Hashtag Yem B Convo. Right, Scotty B? Speaking of Twitter, Here's Ted Lasso Lawnboy again. We heard from him earlier, but we introduced him as Mike Lawnmemo Menio. So my first fish show happened to be a pretty darn good one. It was uh, December 11th, 1997, and that was in Rochester, New York. You know, the Roses debut, huge, Down With Disease, that's all-time one of my favorite jams. It was fantastic and a phenomenal ghost that would kind of shape the way that I felt about that, that song. Fish experience, what that means to me. Wow, is that an amazing question. I think for me, it's a place where I connect to something that's hard to describe on a whole nother level. Uh, it's a level of happiness and spirituality that I've been able to find nowhere else. I go to fish or if I'm listening to fish, it moves my soul on a level that it's hard to describe. And, you know, even at a show or listening afterward, it's just every time fish hits my ears, there's a jolt of energy that hits me and I'm getting up and dancing or I'm crying or I'm just all kinds of different emotions. And that's what I get from fish. It's like a, an injection of, of some kind of energy into my body. Then you add to the fact that almost all of my best friends go to fish or are into fish. And when we're at a show and they're standing next to me and we're experiencing that together, that is a bond that I haven't been able to find anywhere else. When I'm with my best friends and we're bonding over a Reba jam or a 20 minute tweezer jam and then when it ends you look the, your friend in the eye and you're just like, that is an unspoken bond. It's so beautiful. So I just started doing that and people really responded right out, right off the bat. Um, you know, I got to give a shout out to Scott Bernstein. He was like, check this out. This is really good stuff. And he publicized me. He put me in touch with Brad Sands. Brad Sands gave me a quote about the very first ghost that was played at his house. And then fish.net jumped on that. So like right away I had people, you know, looking at it and it just grew and grew. And then I had a group of people like tell me that they would listen every single day and they had an email thread with all their friends and they would talk about ghosts you know, 20 of them, and an email thread, and it was a way for them to stay together and connect, and they told me about this at a show. So that the Daily Ghost took me a long time. I did about 120, and it took about six months to do all of them. But it was an amazing personal experience. My ear for listening just exponentially grew. I got 
to be such a better listener at listening to changes. I could expect what the band was gonna do a lot better, just like listening through, the, and then also the progression through the years. Another fan who has danced to more than her fair share of ghosts and type two jams is Carla No. I'm 45 years old and I live in the New York City metro area. 45 year old East Coast fan? Yep, definitely a 1.0 lifer. My first fish show was 12195 at Hershey Park Arena. memory that sticks out to me from my first show looking down at the floor we had gotten tickets uh, in the hundreds and we were actually on page side and I remember looking down at the floor and looking at the back of the floor and seeing all these people dancing and I, I felt this connection to those folks you know fish is so textured and multi-layered and and serves uh, a different purpose or need for everybody. Um, some of it's the same and some of it's different. You got the people who were there, and at least back in the day, that were really interested in taping and people who were really interested in writing down the set list or analyzing everything, people who were in the moment, people who were just there to dance, people who were there for all of it. In today's social media age, you got people taking pictures, coordinating outfits, or people trying to just spread their fishness on social media. But then you got the dancers. And I would say, you know, I guess if I had to quote unquote label myself, I would definitely label myself as a dancer within the fish scene. You know, my first several years of going to shows, I went to my seat, hung out with my friends during the show and, and had a great, fantastic time. But my first time really exploring, like, dancing, like, true, what I would consider truly dancing at the Fish Show was Deer Creek 97 run, 81097. I actually did not go to my seat during the set and found myself in the moat where there was people dancing and I was like glued there. And I, I can just say that the energy during that show, specifically during the cities, was like, <laughs> I don't want to overuse the word magic, but that shared energy with everybody. I, I had reached like a new place internally with my fish going experience. And from that point on, these energy pockets were what I was seeking out. These early energy pockets were often found in the moat, on platforms, in the aisles, on the side, on steps. And it basically became the way I needed to see fish. <laughs> you know, if, if I see a show in a normal row with seats, it, it doesn't sound different per se, but it feels different. You know, part of going to see fish is, for me, is reaching that inner place that I get to, you know, through dancing. And I would, you know, sometimes equate it to like a runner's high. You have people who are running marathons or long distances and they reach this point where they reach this like natural endorphin released euphoria. And so I would say that if the music is inspiring me to dance and reach that place, I, I definitely reach some sort of like dancer's high. It's this uh, unfiltered, pure place of joy where um, someone like me, who I have some uh, attention issues, I guess you could say at times, but there are a few things that hold my attention and really 
allow me to be in the now. Like, not think about the future, not think about the past, but just really be in the moment. If it sounds like a spiritual experience or even a sacred ritual, that's because it probably is. The individual parts of a fish show are not sacred by themselves, neither the band nor the venue nor the light show nor even the songs. But put them all together, and by midway in the second set, the experience can start to feel sacred. You know what else is sacred? Commercial breaks. We'll be right back. As more and more fans sought experiences like those we heard about from people like Carla, No, and Chris Glushko and Dave Calarco throughout this episode, they left their seats to find any space inside the venue that was free from distraction, free from chit-chat and Instagrammers, free from curiosity seekers and a noisy social scene. That shared common desire was one of the factors that eventually led the band to make a deliberate move that would further assist those conditions. That is, they created an oasis for those seeking some kind of expressive, full-body participatory experience, as well as for those who just came to casually dance, and even those on the opposite shore who just wanted a place to meet up with all their friends. The move? Fish did away with all the awkward and restrictive floor seating and established general admission floors at all of their arena shows. The floor was now just one big open space, a blank canvas. But in 1.0 and 2.0, dance space was not always quite as easy to come by. Let's hear more from Carla. If I'm going to talk about dancing and dance space in the late 90s, I need to mention MSG. <laughs> MSG, before the remodel, and I think it was 2011, was incredible. And when I stepped foot into the garden, I mean, that was incredible. I will never forget what those inner rings were like. And I really, really wish they were still there. And I, I'm sure many, many of us feel that way. You know, they were basically an aisle or a, a walkway that formed a ring around the entire room. And there was one on the 100 levels and one on the upper 200 levels. Those spots were raging dance parties. You know, I think ushers didn't like it at first, but at the garden, they, they kind of just let us do our thing. Something also that was really pronounced on those inner rings. I, I mean, you can still feel it today, but back then, the bounce of the floors was just really pronounced. When you have like dozens and dozens of people throwing down in the ring, it really would make the floor vibrate.
I can definitely say that, you know, my first uh, several years of going to fish, I was going with my friends from, you know, either my hometown or college. We'd go to our seats, met a few people here and there. But once I started seeking out energy pockets and dance space, I started meeting a lot more people. Summer 98, I, this was actually happening a lot for me, doing the whole thing and going to a lot of cities and venues I'd never been at before. And so just the newness of that is really exciting. And, you know, I'd go with my friends and be like, okay, see what's at break. And I really started kind of just oftentimes just going out and, and spending the show by myself, which might sound weird to people that go to other concerts, but for Fish and for me, that's that's actually, you know, one of the ways I like to do it because you're never really truly by yourself. You know, and so I was going to certain platforms or steps or aisles and moats in different venues. And, you know, I'd like to be where there's the most space, where the usher isn't giving you a, a hard time, where the sound is good. And night after night, you start seeing the same people. <laughs> you know, or you'd see them in the lot before the show, like, oh, I, I spent, you know, the MoMA with you last night, or, oh, I recognize you, or, oh, hey, hey. And, and it's really how my connections within the community were, were started. And for those of us who started seeing fish in college in the late 90s, at this point, we're all like in our 40s, early 50s. <laughs> and we still go. It still means a lot. I mean, it's like a part of me at this point. And so as long as this band is touring, I'll still be dancing. <laughs> This episode is called Second Set, and it's getting to be as long as one, too. Second sets tend to run longer and hotter than first sets. We had our very own Brian Brinkman, with an assist from the famous Mockingbird, fly into Wilson's castle and steal the blueprints for set two directly out of the Helping Friendly playbook. Here's what he found. The perfect second set is a set that flows perfectly from the first note of whatever song they play to the final note. It does not matter to me what songs are played in the second set. I do not think that a big fish song, a historic fish song that is jammed makes a second set better than a new fish song or a more muted fish song that jams or is placed in a perfect way that flows from one song to the other. I think that a set needs a semblance of balance in terms of jamming, segues, contemplative, like slow down ballad, a good conclusion that doesn't necessarily need to be a heavy rock-driven conclusion, but more just needs to put a period or an exclamation point at the end of the set in just whatever it does. Ultimately, like I could run through a number of sets that I love, like 914, 1999, 629, 2000, 730, 2003, 626, 95, 812, 2015. All of those sets have something that's unified, that's hard to put into words and doesn't rely on the songs that were played. It doesn't rely on a huge version of a big fish song or a huge conclusion in like a rock peak. 
But instead, I'd add 726.17 to this list as well. They live in this kind of ephemeral space where it's almost like watching a basketball player just dominate. Like you can't really put a finger on it. And and some some of their shots are from mid-range and those go in. And some of the moments they, they drive through the lane and, and, and they're just able to overtake defenders. But they're also, they have an outside game that's going on and their passing is on par. And they're just seeing the ball in a way that like they're able to play incredible defense. And you walk away just being like, wow, that... That player just dominated for those 48 minutes. And I feel like you get that in the best fish second sets where regardless what songs they played, regardless what order they played them in, everything seemed to work in this fluid way that almost feels as though they composed it before they came on stage. But that again, that is the most important aspect of it is they didn't compose it. They walked on stage, maybe had an idea about what they were going to open up with, but they didn't have an idea about what they were going to go into and what they were going to play and as a result what they played the fact that it sounds composed the fact that it sounds preconceived makes it all the better And that's how you end up with a 46-minute Soul Planet, or a 38-minute Ruby Waves in the middle of a tweezerless jam fest that ends with tweezer reprise, or a four-song set that feels like you just experienced every song ever written, or an unexpected harpua where some awkward dude wearing white ends up on stage singing fake lyrics to a Scottish pop song. You mean the Proclaimers weren't singing Hannibal Lecter? Maybe I was just hearing things, or making shit up. Some of the best second sets happen when the band makes shit up as they go along, or when they take detours from the familiar, entering unknown sonic forests where they explore dark and foreign paths, before ending up gloriously with a wild set-closing You Enjoy Myself that sends us home feeling like our team just won the championship. Before we get going, you guys remember Arvind? My name is Arvind Gopal Retnam. Arvind is the Vice President of Social Responsibility for the Milwaukee Bucks and the Executive Director of the Milwaukee Bucks Foundation. But we like him because he's a dedicated fish fan like the rest of us. I think when I go to a show, I've built up such that repertoire over 20 plus years of being connected to old songs, to new songs, to tab songs, to mic songs, to it doesn't, it doesn't really matter what the set list is, honestly. And that may be contrary to a lot of diehard fish fans and some of my best friends who go expecting the most unbelievable set list. I'm good with anything, to be perfectly honest, because it's amazing. Slow songs, fast songs. I absolutely do want a good jam or two in there. But the most important thing to me is just they're out there performing and that we're lucky to be out there watching this, seeing this, experiencing this, and the ability to go from generation 
for me now from one generation to the next to be connected to something like this is awesome. And it's hard to put into words, right? But I think that's my feeling when I go to a show is that knowing from that first 10 seconds when I know what that song is to the last 10 seconds, hoping that it's a tweezer reprise that ends off that second set. It's everything in between is unbelievable improvisational rock and joy and it's a surprise no matter what. And that's what keeps me coming back to every show. That's what keeps me, whether it's tuning into live streams during the, to the breaks, to the beacon jams, to that surprise element you try and maintain no matter how you watch these shows, how you attend these shows, and is, is an amazing connection to have. It still comes down to appreciating that there's unbelievable excellence that is being provided to us through their musical genius. And it's taken them years to continue to fine tune what they're doing. And I think for me personally, it's taken me years to appreciate and fine tune exactly what their music is meant to be. What exactly is their music meant to be? High quality entertainment? A spiritual soundtrack? A raging dance party? A portal to another dimension? A sonic meditation? Good old fashioned rock and roll? It's all of those things and it's anything that you want it to be. Look, all we know is that we love it and that you can compare it, analyze it, discuss it, dissect it, deconstruct it, contextualize it, frame it, bag it, tag it, but at the end of the day, there is simply nothing like a second set of fish. End of story. But what happens when you can't make it to see fish because the last time they played on your continent... Boris Yeltsin was still president of Russia. Wilson was still in command of the lizard people. And Fish had yet to go on a hiatus. Next week on Undermine, we're going across the stormy seas to talk to Fish fans in the wild and to revisit Fish's time on the shores of the Baltic Sea, touring abroad. That was a just great second set, by the way. Regroup at the hotel, and we'll meet you back here next week. Undermine is brought to you by Osiris Media, the leading music storyteller. Executive producers are Tom Marshall, RJB, Brian Brinkman, and Matt Dwyer. Written by Benji Eisen. Produced and edited by Brian Brinkman. Mixed and mastered by Matt Dwyer. Produced by David Goldstein, Jonathan Hart, Brad Tenbrook, and Don Jenkins. Production assistance and writing by Noah Eckstein and Julia Schuster. Social media by Nick Sejas. Original music by Amar Sastry. Show art by Mark Dowd. Thank you to all our interviewees. We'll see you next week. 
This season of Undermine is all about the fish community, and since that's you, go ahead, get online and judge us. Please rate and review us on your podcaster, if it's favorable, that is. Oh, and your tour buddies would love a link to this episode, so don't let them down. And while you're at it, they want your extra mail orders, too. Next week, not on Undermine. I would say my greatest contribution to the fish community is that at the Darien Lake show in 2011, I held up a Jennifer Dances sign and Trey took the sign from me and he held it up for the crowd and he pumped his fist and then he did not play the song. But it was still really cool and I hope that everybody got a good laugh out of it. Hello, everybody. I'm Bruce. And I'm Nolan. And this is the Corner of Gray Street Podcast. As longtime Dave Matthews Band fans, we set out to create a podcast to dive deep into the past, present, and future of DMB. Not only do we recap and review shows within an ongoing tour, but we revisit past shows from throughout the band's history, conduct interviews with a wide variety of guests with ties to DMB, and create unique and exclusive content like our Concerts on the Corner series. Whether you're a fan of the band or just a fan of great music, we think you'll find something you'll enjoy. We can't wait to see you on The Corner of Gray Street. This is the story of Whitney Houston. This is the story of Kurt Cobain. Of George Michael, of Otis Redding, of Amy Winehouse, of Michael Hutchins, Bob Marley. This is the story of Prince. It's a new podcast series. About how they died, why they died, and why we're still talking about them so long after. It's like nothing you've ever heard before. It's storytelling. But it's more than that, because rock stars... They tell us how we feel. They change our mood. They change the clothes we wear, the people we hang out with. The way we remember things. It's them who give us those ludicrous moments, the ones where you're... Jumping around, singing your heart out, feeling understood. And it's those moments we'll help you remember, the ones you're thinking about right now. That feeling. That feeling. It's coming soon from Crowd Network. Just search for Death of a Rockstar on your podcast app. And subscribe now.